Hey, everybody. This is your host, Majel Connery. And before we do anything, I want to give you a quick heads up that this episode contains a couple bad words. All right, here we go. I think as a Latina, that's like barely five feet. When I'm walking in, I know, like, I know what a lot of people are thinking. And, not, and I'm not even saying negative things. I'm just saying, like, even like, oh, you know, <laughs> this 411 with purple hair. From Cap Radio, this is a music of their own, an interview podcast about women in music. We hear stories of survival and perseverance, and we explore why being a woman in music is so different from being a man. The women I interview here are extraordinary because they are making it. And as a woman in music myself, I want to understand what they are doing that's different, that makes them stand out. I'm your host, Majel Connery, and in this first season, we're meeting women in classical music, where the number of men vastly exceeds the number of women. This is a music of their own from Cap Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. My guest on this episode is Angelica Negron, a composer and multi-instrumentalist who's been commissioned by the Bang on a Can All-Stars and Kronos Quartet, and has premieres with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, the National Symphony Orchestra, Opera Philadelphia, LA Philharmonic, and the New York Philharmonic. She's also a founding member of the band Balloon and performed with them on NPR's Tiny Desk. When you are a composer of classical music today, one of the coolest things you can possibly do is get a commission from an orchestra. When this happens, you've kind of hit the big time. But orchestras are very high stakes and there's not much room for error. It's like you gotta know how to ride the bike before you even try. I asked Angelica to describe what it was like for her to learn not just how to get by in this environment, but also how to still be herself when it's so high visibility. How does she deal with what the orchestras expect from her? And how does she know what to expect from herself? By the way, in what follows, when Angelica refers to coming from the island, she's talking about Puerto Rico, where she grew up. It feels more like it needs to be something that's proven to work before because there's no time to experiment or try new things mm -hmm. because time is money. And <laughs> And it's not like I can be, oh, let's actually try this chord in the woodwinds now instead of, there's no time for that. So, yeah. And I think as a Latina, that's like barely five feet. When I'm walking in, I know, like, I know what a lot of people are thinking. Mm. And, not, and I'm not even saying negative things. I'm just saying, like, even like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this 411 <laughs> with purple hair. Because there's so much of like, did you really mean this? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I already imagine that I screwed up the part and it's transposed when it shouldn't or whatever. It feels like the difference between getting dressed up to go to a fancy dinner with a friend versus like getting dressed up to meet the queen or something. Like you really can't afford to screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> and once you're there, you can't just go to the bathroom and like put something else on. Exactly. <laughs> you made the commitment. Of you, you chose to wear that and you have to own it. I could go, oh, this metaphor is good. I can <laughs> I was going to say, maybe there's like, you went to the bathroom, maybe there's toilet paper stuck in your shoe, but still, you know, you have to... You got to show up. It's got to be right the first time and there's up. no going back. Exactly. So, and I've gotten better um, about it. I think what's 
actually helped me is in my teaching. A big part of it is mentoring this young kids. And a lot of them are girls. And you're talking about um, this program that you, where you're a teaching artist with the New York Philharmonic. It's called the Young Composers Program, and you're mentoring really young kids in some cases. Exactly. I'm the one telling them, like, no, you are the boss. Because a lot of the times in this program, they're putting in front of the New York Phil 10, 11-year-olds. So I'm telling them things that I'm and that I was not applying to myself. So that's been really kind of revealing and like, oh... I need to walk the walk. Is that the, the expression? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to model the behavior you expect exactly. them to adopt. Exactly. And I, I had an experience not long ago in which I was just accompanying a, a student. She was commissioned to write this orchestral overture for a concert. And I was in the rehearsal just kind of like to be there for her. She, she did not need me. And I was introduced to the conductor during the break. And he was on his phone when someone was introducing me to him and telling him, she's, a, she's the, the teaching artist that mentored this composer. She's, but she's a brilliant composer. She's been commissioned by blah, blah, blah. And like, and I'm in my brain, I'm like, this person does not care. And I don't, I don't care that he cares. But he was on his phone the whole time, did not look at me in the eye at any point. And I think a few years ago that would have stayed with me. What I was preoccupied with in that moment was how I acted in front of my students and the conversation that we had on the train, like when we were walking back to the train. Just which like, was what? Which was, did you see what just happened? Mm-hmm. Notice that. That's a thing. How do we deal with that? Yeah, how do, like, do how do you, you pick your battles, you know? In that case, I was not like, I'm not the person to be like, hey, I'm important, look at me. It's just noticing those things because when that person then will be in charge of conducting your music or programming your music or whatever the power dynamics are that has to do with your music, then those things will come out in one way or another. And that's when it matters. When they have allotted 30 minutes of rehearsal time for your new piece, but they play it once and it sounds okay and it's an easy piece. It's all in 4-4. We can move on to the Brahms. You can be like, no, actually, let's go back to measure 15 and let's try that again. It's not inviting the people. That's like such the bare minimum. It's how you treat them when they're there and what support systems you put in place from the basic things of guest artists that's coming to to work with an orchestra or to work with an ensemble organization to the time you give them to rehearsal and the donors you put them in front of and... <laughs> And the situations you put them in, all of that is super important for an artist to want to come back to do those things. And I hope it doesn't come across as this way of like, it's for the next generation. I have to do this. You know, like they have this depth or like this um, obligation, you know, which I feel like I do. But it's not the main reason um, that I should do something. I think, I mean, I should do it for myself because I am there for a reason and I deserve the same respect that other white male composers that are invited in those spaces have. You're hearing a section of Doa Bean from the album Old Fires Catch Old Buildings, played by Load Bang Ensemble. 
At the beginning of this piece, there's a quiet recording of a pair of twins who invented their own little language. And then you can hear the ensemble pick up the musicality of this language and repeat it back as music. Angelica is fascinated with childhood, and that fascination yields compositional tools that she can use. Here, the act of looking back becomes a repetitive loop, like a memory. The secret meaning of these children's chatter is closed off to us as adults, but Angelica engages with that world creatively by enacting a musical dialogue between childhood and adulthood. Angelica and I next dive into a paradox. So we've heard her refer to her physical petiteness and her purple hair, and the fact that people can sometimes find her cute. This is complicated by the fact that her music could be called cute, because Angelica uses childhood as a compositional tool. She does a lot with toy instruments and has a gentle musical aesthetic. So taken all together, she can give the impression of being a small, cute woman writing small, cute things. And on one hand, this seems totally infantilizing. But on the other, it's what she does and does well. So the paradox here is, does she lean into this? Is it okay as a woman to make music that could be called cute? Or is that reinforcing a bad stereotype? Oh, I, I struggle with this a lot. Since balloon has been a thing and my voice also is very airy and and the context of balloon has been said childlike a bunch of times. And then I also look this way and also use these tools and these instruments that exist in this kind of visual aesthetic. And that all together could be very much like me falling into the, my own trap of like of the cute thing and I have to work against it. Do you? Well, that's the thing is that I I feel like I have to, but I don't know if I do. What would be risked for you to just in every single context be exactly who you are? There's part of me that is like, yeah, this is me. Great. Feels right. But there's another part of me is like, come on, you're like, <laughs> Get a little tougher. What do you yeah. think that you lack? Is it authority? Is it height? Is it like <laughs> what? Well, I I do think authority is a big thing for me, and and I mean it's all the things that are pretty gendered too. But I think also come with if you add on to that the Latina layer, it's just and the cultural thing of like 
always asking for permission, apologizing when you don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I want to ask you. I want to ask you about your voice, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, for some reason, I'm nervous to bring this up because I feel like this might even be like a hurtful place for you to go. Maybe not. Hopefully not. But like, your Tiny Desk concert with Balloon is super neat. I love that. I hope you feel positive about it. You are giving me a face. Thank you. I feel very positive about everything in that concert except for my voice. Okay, so, oh God. No, but let's talk about it because well, I love talking about these things that I talk about that with my close friends too. So there are a bunch of people in the comments mm-hmm. who are like, nah, why does she sing so quiet? I wish the singer would sing a little bit louder. And I was just like, but that's your decision and it's your voice. That's who you are. That's what you sound like. So yeah, I don't so, tell me. Oh, there's so much there. Um, my voice is pretty quiet and does not project so well. So I really struggled with how to project and still sound like myself. Because I don't sound like myself when I'm projecting mm-hmm. with no mic over six people behind me playing and tiny desk is tough because we're not gonna say no to that (laughs) um and also we're not gonna be like when they said no mics it's like you know (laughs) it's what it is right so at some point then i mean you must have seen it eventually online someone asked me to share the tiny desk and i sent them the link and i made the mistake of looking at the comments and i started reading and i had like a not not a nervous breakdown but i just I just felt so shitty, like I, in a way I've never felt before. And I knew that I should have stopped, yeah. but I just kept looking. And then some people were saying like, oh, you know what? She's actually a great composer, like daring to defend me with my composing career. And I was like, you know, I appreciate that. But I was like, no, no, no. I, I mean, I also feel like I sound terrible. And, you know, as someone that's stepping out of myself, I don't feel like I sound good in that. It's something. And I think if someone said something really shitty about my about a piece I wrote, I don't think I would take it that bad. I think it's something with like the deepest insecurity in me, which is my voice. And also the fact that it's a really personal thing because it's you, like your thighs or or if you have something in your body, you know, that you don't like and then they go after that one thing, right? This is the thing too. Like it's the one thing I've done that has the most visibility because of the platform, but then it's the one thing I'm not proud about and what I did. Not again um, in this conversation, but in my life, it's this whole thing about the resilience too that is connected to Puerto Ricans a lot too and like how they're how resilient they are like let's keep throwing things at them you know which is also very much like and I see in my family see it in my mother this cultural thing but also this matriarchal thing and this woman and this can keep taking shit and somehow still put on makeup and (laughs) and smile stay with us for more of my conversation with Angelica Negron we'll be right back I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. This is a music of their own from Cap Radio. I'm Majel Connery. Thank you. 
album Prisma Tropical by Angelica's band Balloon, and the track is called El Espanto. We just talked about Angelica's voice and whether it's too quiet. I think this track is an interesting test of this question. For me, the song strikes a balance. There's a lot of activity in the ensemble, and then there's this cool distance in the voice. I think it's the right move, because if there was a heavy, dominating voice on this song, it would compete with the rest of the track. Angelica sings the way that you would want a sensitive instrumentalist to play. She knows her role in the ensemble. She knows how to step forward, and she knows how to step back to allow the music to be about the music and not about her. part of my conversation with Angelica is about a really interesting aspect of her childhood, and it also has an explanatory power in terms of how she writes today. Angelica grew up in the presence of drag queens, and she saw a lot of living room drag as a very young kid. Drag is about the difference between who we appear to be and who we really are, and what power, if any, we have to manipulate the difference which is what we've been talking about in this episode. So I wanted to know whether Angelica sees the work of drag, the renegotiation of outside versus inside, in her own work. In what follows, we talk in passing about a mini film opera Angelica wrote called The Island We Made. It was a commission from Opera Philadelphia and featured the singer Eliza Bagg and the drag queen Sasha Velour. It was local shows and and houses. I wasn't going to clubs um, when I was eight. It was mostly these very low-key hangs in someone's house in which they would clear some furniture and then turn it into a runway. And and then I would see these people that were, you know, just kind of part of, of my family in a way. And the drag that I was exposed to at that age was mostly like impersonating Latina divas and Puerto Rican icons. So a lot of La Lupe, Yolandita Monge, Nita Nazario, Iris Chacon, like this kind of icons of of culture. And for me, it was more about this kind of hyper creature larger than life on stage, which the stage was just a living room and a house, but still this kind of larger than life iteration of this person and this side of that person that really came to life my culture is inherently melodramatic. And I grew up on telenovelas, you know, so what? what's something cooler than watching a, a telenovela is like actually experiencing those people in a living room, like standing right in front of you. Of course, there's like the exaggerated makeup, the jewels and the everything bedazzled. And I mean, it's also why I love telenovelas. It's because a lot of the times it's like, what? This is completely absurd. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like there is something there that resonates and rings very true or that, you know, like you have an aunt that kind of does this messed up thing, you know, <laughs> but you never talk about it. So I think there's there's this uh, 
appeal to like something that's very specific that happens in family and people that are close to you that you know um but then it's exaggerated in a point that then gives you permission to laugh to it and also makes you know that other people see it so that it doesn't feel so much like a secret anymore or maybe something that you know I don't know like something that you just don't talk about it's again I was not <laughs> not unpacking this when I was eight uh. this way but <laughs> but I think there's definitely something in that of like oh yeah like you know these things are pretty funny but when we're in Thanksgiving maybe we're not laughing we're just sitting in uncomfortable silence but then seeing that highlighted in, in some drag performances then it's like oh yeah That's pretty funny. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I was going to ask you, what do you think it is about hyperbole and over the topness that is so important to drag? Like, what is the thing that is being stated there? Or what is the reality that's being asserted there? And I think you just said, basically, like, there are some things that you can't just say in normal life. The only way to say them is by Mm -hmm. over saying them and then they get articulated in this way that's like there's levity to it and it allows people to laugh and then right. it's okay to talk about i think there's something really appealing to me about this juxtaposition of like the appearance could give you so much information and you could kind of feel like okay this is what i'm in for and then the first note of the music starts or they open their mouth or they do a gesture that completely changes huh. everything I was assuming before. The surprise element, the capacity to evoke empathy and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. draw you in in a way that, I mean, for me at least, nothing else does. Yeah, you're putting your finger on something that I never thought about, which is that there's this like paradox in drag, which is that on the surface, it's all so fake that it doesn't even need to be called fake. Like it's, it's saying, it's screaming, this isn't real. <laughs> mm -hmm, But then mm -hmm. it's coupled with this incredible capacity for disclosure and for mm -hmm. intimacy and for kind of letting the feelings flow. <laughs> and um, I didn't I didn't make that connection. I mean, maybe that's not a paradox. It's it's it goes back to what you were saying again, which is that somehow in order for these things to come out, they have to overly come out. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's um fast forward to today and will you explain how you got interested in drag from a compositional perspective? and uh, how the Opera Philadelphia Commission came about and how on earth you ended up working with the remarkable Sasha Velour. I will say that my way back into drag was through RuPaul's Drag Race. And it was through a friend that was like, have you seen this show? Uh, I was a big fan of like America's Next Top Model, all of those like uh -huh. cheesy competition shows. So I was like, okay, I'm in. And then I got super obsessed with it. Um, I remember then being like, oh, I'm in New York. And then there's so many different drag shows here every day. And one of the shows that I attended pretty regularly was um, Nightgowns, which is Sasha's show. And oh. then when Opera Philadelphia reached out to me about doing a, a short art opera film, I, I remember Sarah from Opera Philadelphia um, in our initial call asked me like, what's your kind of dream of vision of this? And I said, well, I, 
I've always been wanting to work with Sasha Velour. I'm crazy for even saying that out loud because it's <laughs> never going to happen. But I see Sasha's um, lips. I see her character. And then I hear Eliza Back's voice. I'm a big fan of Eliza's mm-hmm. voice. And I put a lot of thought into the pairings of the voice mm. um, and the drag queen. Can so- I just interrupt you, Angelica? I'm so, so sorry. I, I want to make sure that people listening know a few things about Sasha. So one is that she's the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race season nine. And I know that because I'm a total slobbering fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. And, and Sasha is a really unique queen in many, many ways. But one way in particular is that she is a bald queen mm-hmm. as an homage to her mother who died of cancer. And this is an extraordinary thing because in the context of drag, you do not go out on stage without a wig. Mm-hmm. It's It would be understood classically, at least, as like showing your masculine aspect, so right. you don't do that. But Sasha is reframing what counts as feminine in mm-hmm. this context and saying, no, I am a bald queen because my mother is beautiful and mm-hmm. it is important to me to represent this. And I, I, that is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, totally. And and the invitation to conversations and questions, and obviously, a wig and hair are one of the most kind of um, emblematic signifiers of being a woman, right? Yeah. That's up there. And then just inviting a space to question why that is. Yeah. For me, I mean, it starts with her appearance, but then her gestures. It's all this kind of very thoughtful way of presenting you with an experience that will just shake you (laughs) to your core and it's pretty incredible how it just infiltrates into (laughs) into my body and and i i know i've had conversations with other people that have seen them too and it's it's just it gets to you what do you mean angelica like i'm so captivated by what you're saying it sounds like the transformation is expressing something that you feel about yourself. But what exactly is that if you can put your finger on it? I mean, I I, I would say it's more than that. It's For me, it's more like it's uh, the way I see the world. Hmm. There is, I think, a very specific reason, or at least I can think of one specific reason that is part of why that's inherent to the art of drag, which is that it's born out of communities that have been repressed and have been oppressed. Sadly, you have to get really creative Mm. to survive. My brain goes to the Puerto Rican resilience and how um, media loves to use that word. And I've used it also in describing a piece. So I'm not, you know, as a Puerto Rican, I'm not, um, you know, it happens, but it's like, then why do we have to keep being resilient? You know, this thing of like, keep throwing things at us and we'll take it. And you know what? We'll be, we'll make the most creative protest ever, you know, like I said, but that comes from a deep place of, of survival. There's an overlap there in, with drag and in, in that, that it comes also from a similar instinct that untaps creative potential and possibilities. Again, I don't, I don't want to kind of glorify romanticize it. or glorify creativity that comes out of trauma. But I do feel there is something inherent there in 
of tapping into a lot of emotions that, you know, sometimes we don't even have words for. Um, Angelica, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course, it. my pleasure. And, and I'm sorry, I didn't get to like uh, summarize very concisely those things. I just, <sighs> it's no. a thing that I have a hard time with. <laughs> no, you're doing the exact same thing that one of my other guests did. <laughs> she I'm was sorry. Like, at the end, I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Can I tell you, please? <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're listening to Panorama, Angelica's piece for the cellist Nicholas Fatinos. What I love about a lot of Angelica's work is that she can take a small sound and make it feel big. This piece is really simple on paper. There's cello and there's gentle electronics. But off the paper, as the piece goes on, it starts to feel like it's levitating. Like a hot air balloon, it rises and gives us this opening the sense of bigness and vastness like the name of the piece it's giving us a panorama a wide view sasha Valor has a great line she says anyone can and must do drag and she does not mean that we should all walk the runway in four inch heels she means that drag is something we all do daily life is a performance we modify how we present depending on where we happen to be. When Sasha says we can all and must all do drag, she means let's be conscious of the drag we're already doing. Let's choose who we are and not let it be chosen. The thing about Angelica that is so disarming is that she is all in, 100% in on being a petite Latina woman and she funnels that directly into a musical world that so perfectly reflects her. So if being in drag is going all in, in whatever direction most says, I am me, then Angelica is already doing drag, and she's doing it to positive effect. The only thing I would add is that we all have to stop saying we're sorry, and I say we and not she, because more than one of my guests has ended their discussion this way, and I do it too. But drag, I'm pretty sure, is not sorry. On our next episode, how composer Inti Figuesvisueta expresses her world through her music. I put in so much energy into what I do. Like it is what I think about, it's what I dream about, it's what I read about. I think just like being hungry and optimistic, <laughs> I think is like enough to keep me going for a long time. That's a music of their own from Cap Radio. Thank you for joining us.
A Music of Their Own is a Cap Radio production. Interviews were engineered and produced by me, Majel Connery, and edited by Kevin Doherty. Paul Conley mastered the mix. Sally Schilling is our executive producer with production assistance from Jen Picard. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Chris Bruno is in charge of marketing. Our designs were created by Marissa Espiritu. Renee Thompson is our digital projects manager. And our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Emily Zentner. The theme song for a music of their own is called We Need a Room, and it's by my band, Sky Creature. You can find the song and Sky Creature on all major audio platforms. Don't forget to follow A Music of Their Own wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and a review so others can find this podcast too. To find out more about the guests on our podcast, go to the show notes or visit capradio.org forward slash A Music of Their Own. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.